Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Boothcast. This Boothcast today is brought to you by Shoran Partners. Now Shoran Partners are a wealth management and financial services firm. Uh, they work with you with your money, they're in it for the long term and they're there just to help you out and make sure that you're building on your money rather than letting it uh, sit and dwindle away. So I've got my money with them and have for the past four or five years now and I'm also lucky enough to be working with them as an athlete. These guys have been massive supporters of surf ski and ocean sports in general. So if you have any money and you want to throw it out there and, and make a really good return from it, please check out Shore and Partners. Now I'm going to throw you over to my interview uh, with Earl Evans. I'm actually getting interviewed by Earl today. So Earl is the co-CEO of Shore and Partners and he wanted to interview me. So here we go. We're going to throw you over. Hello and welcome to Boothcast on Boothcast. I normally speak to people about sport, business and the winning mindset, but today uh, Earl Evans, the co-CEO of Shore and Partners, will be interviewing me this time. So um, Earl, please take it away. There you go. Well, welcome everybody and uh, welcome Michael. Um, Michael Booth. Uh, you, I, I sort of actually always look at you, Michael, as sort of the Craig Lowndes or if you look at the old veneer, the Peter Brock of... Um, the ocean paddling world. You're always positive, you're always happy, you're always smiling, you've got a great demeanor, um, which is a real credit to you. And um, I think it's wonderful for our sport and a really good reflection on you. So uh, what I want to do is just take the interview process or the questioning process a little bit off field and behind the scenes more, but just in brief, um, where were you born? How old are you? Where are you living now? Just in brief, and then we'll sort of channel off to a few other directions. I was born in Belmont, New South Wales, so um, in Lake Macquarie, which is just outside of Newcastle, south of Sydney. Uh, sorry, north of Sydney, two hours north of Sydney. Um, I am 29 years old. I grew up on Inca's Beach, lived there till I was 18, moved to the Gold Coast um, till I was 25, and then now I live in Perth, and I'm 29 years old. And you started in the, the Nipper movement. Um, what age did you start? Actually, the surf club, life-saving sort of agenda? Well, I had uh, an older brother, Stephen, so I was straight into surf club. I was the, the kid down the beach playing building sandcastles at three years old and, and running around chasing my older brother. So um, I, I joined Kay's Beach at six, at six and then I, I moved to Swansea Belmont when I was 10 and then um, just gradually moved through the movement. Yeah. And, 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 and was there any particular discipline that you particularly liked as you were coming through? Was it, you know, running on the beach? Was it swimming? Was it the board, the paddle? Like, was there a particular discipline that you sort of really liked out of all of them as you sort of matured into, um, you know, your, your mid to late teens? I think I, I just really enjoyed everything. So I was a guy who, who did the 2K beach run, who did the swim, the board, the Ironman, the, the ski race. He, I even dabbled in sprint and flags when I was 11 and I won the branch titles. That was always something I remember. Um, but I, it wasn't something that I generally focused on. Like I, I was doing triathlons and cross country and I just like training. I, I've always loved training. I always loved getting down there and doing my best and trying to, to get the best out of myself. But I guess as a youngster and having the nineties the and, and the early two thousands of the uncle Toby's and the Nutrigrain series, you were definitely setting yourself up to try and be one of those guys and try and get, eventually go to the Nutrigrain and Ironman trials and, and try and get in that. That was sort of like the, the goal as a kid. And, and during that, like I found it when I was, um, you know, when, when I was young and I was playing tennis and I was, you know, your natural ability got you so far and then you actually at some point decided to get into weights or better cardio or, 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 or things that assisted you rather than just your natural talent or your age. 
At what age did you start to, there's the general training, so you'd obviously go on your squad and you'd do your board, you'd do your running, um, you know, you'd do your paddle. Um, but at what age did you start thinking about broadening your horizons to, to, to upskill you as an athlete? In other words, you know, diet, uh, maybe some weight training or other things outside just doing the discipline every day repetitively. What sort of age did you start to think about, about that? I think around 15 and 16, I probably started to really start to take it more seriously and, and add the gym sessions in, think about the, the structured training more. I was probably swimming six to eight times a week, plus the board sessions, plus the ski sessions. Um, like and was, that, was, that, was, the swimming, was the swimming pool and ocean? Uh, I was mainly in the pool. So the pool was the main focus. I guess I, would, I was probably doing competitive swimming up until I was about 14 and then... I guess I really enjoyed the, the life-saving and probably wasn't big enough or, or long enough to be a good swimmer. But I had that sort of um, attitude where I'd really train harder and work, work on those things that made me, made me better. And I sort of did a lot of that with my dad and dad was sort of like my coach and my mentor for a, a lot of that period. And I was very lucky to, to have him and sort of pushing me and I guess just helping um, help me do what I really wanted to do, which was just always be an athlete and, and try and push hard. So but I guess everything really turned it up when I moved moved up to the Gold Coast when I was eighteen. And what 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 changed there? What what why why the difference in New South Wales and Queensland? I think there was just more of a structure in Queensland. Um, a lot of us from New South Wales at that age, I guess, of eighteen, moved up to the Gold Coast to to join the the North Fifths or the the Bars, um, those sort of. Ironman academies essentially where you went up there and you sort of were in a professional training environment you'd have the swimming in the morning you'd have the running at 10 o'clock and then you'd have the the ski or the craft session in the afternoon and you would do that six days a week um, but you had the, also the support network there as well so when I moved up there with I, I sort of got introduced to Mark Williams and Mark Williams helped me like build it to a house and actually get get more involved in sort of like the whole aspect. I got a job at the North East Surf Club and um, that sort of helped me be able to afford to live when I was up there. And um, I spent about five years there and just sort of really learned how to really push myself. I guess I was probably one of the best trainers and it took me a long time to realise how important it was to actually be the best racer, not just the best trainer. Um, and that was a mental thing that I guess I had to learn the hard way and I just probably didn't perform as well, like I had a few Australian um, medals, like I got a couple of seconds in the Ironman, like through the 15s and 17s and represented Australia and I was representing New South Wales, like through the junior ranks and I was doing all those representative things, but I probably still was relying too much on, um, I guess my training, like my training was always my main thing, but I wasn't racing, I wasn't performing because I was always thinking about too many obstacles. Whereas now I'm like, okay, today it counts. Don't worry about everything else, race hard, do well. That's all that matters. And, and, and at what age did you start to think about the psychology of, of, uh, of the sport? I reckon it was probably around the time that I started ocean ski paddling a bit more seriously. So that would have been around 2011, I think it was. And I went from being an Ironman. So I was trying to do the Ironman thing. I was probably getting like two or three spots outside of the mutual um, game trials and that sort of thing um, and I'd always miss out so, but I'd always have the cool and get a gold I think I finished fourth and sixth and fifth or something like that I, I got second in the junior one um, the year that was my last year under 19s it got cancelled was probably one of my best years I think I won nearly every Ironman race in the country in the under 19s until until Aussies but it just didn't work out unfortunately uh, one of my good friends passed away in, in, the, in the Ironman race that I was racing in so 
Um, we didn't get to finish that one out, but as the, I guess there's sometimes there's bigger things than, than racing. But uh, when I was about 20, 21, I reckon I probably started thinking more about it because it wasn't just about training hard. I remember I meant Jeremy Cotter mentored me a lot. So when I'm, when I was on the Gold Coast, I got uh, why well, I speak about the Ironman stuff is about the trials. I fractured my left tibia. So basically I had stress fractures from running and training too hard because I was just like a machine trainer. I just like, we're just going to try and not miss a session, just keep training, keep vlogging myself. But it probably wasn't the best training way to go. So ended up splitting my shin and getting a crack from the top down to the bottom, probably about this long. Um, and that put me out for about six months. And the only thing that I could do was ocean ski paddling. So sort of saw Jeremy was paddling and, and went down there with the Tower 22 squad, trained with him, Bruce Taylor, Josh Meyer, uh, Corey a little bit as well. And, um, there I sort of learned to really be mentally tough because Jeremy really trained hard. Every session trained hard. Like it was, every session was a race. Every effort was a race. Like you never really got to let off. And I learned to be, I guess, a bit stronger, a bit more resilient when it came to those type of situations. So like I, I'd start sort of beside Jeremy and I'd try to come on and do his wash and then I'd fall off his wash and then I'd come the next ever try and stay on his wash for as long as he can. Then eventually you start to like, try and match him and then come back, try and match him, come back. And then sometimes you'd start to like come up to the side and you'd actually be able to, to be on par with him. And that was sort of where I learned to be able to perform to the end of the effort rather than just performing for part of the effort and then giving up towards the end. Because sometimes you just, it's, it's just a real art to being able to kick it up and push through those barriers that you think exist. Like you Sometimes you think, okay, I can only go this hard. I can only go this fast, but you can go way through that if you if you've been there before and that's between the years right like that's that psychological piece that you've really got to do some work on yourself as an athlete in whatever discipline you do business is no different where you've actually just got to really work hard psychologically to have some triggers and some points did you do any um courses or did you do any um outside did you have a private coach that sort of helped you mentally through things psychologically uh, no, not at all. I've been always been a, I guess, a watchful learner. I always looked around the people around me to see what they're doing, understanding what the processes are that, that they've been able to achieve. But my biggest thing has always been by learning by doing. Um, I probably could have been more successful earlier if I had the same approach as what I have now and have the same mental strength and mental capacity. But I only got that through mainly maturing. But I also yeah. raced. I raced a hell of a lot. I, I was a guy who raced every weekend, pretty much like all year round would and like it'd be in his off season and go and do races. Like I'd go and do like the Gold Coast Marathon or Gold Coast um, 10K and do those type of races because I just wanted to compete. I wanted to always be uh, testing myself and working out what I was doing wrong and how I do it better. And um, yeah, it just, it just honestly became, came through racing and I, I did a lot of it and that's how I learned to be better at it. Yeah. It's actually interesting because I think, um, you know, I was talking to Jake Trevojevic the other day who is, you know, um, one of the manly players in first grade and he's got Tom who plays fullback, but his younger brother's just been signed up with the squad. He's 19 and, um, you know, just a, a big lump of a lad, great talent. But I was actually talking to him and saying, so will he move into first grade straight away? And he said, look, he's just got so much to learn. I said, well, what does he actually have to learn? He's in the top, you know, 25, 30 squad. What has he got to learn? And it's, he basically was saying it's that maturing process. It's working with the coaches. It's the psychology of the game um, rather than it, your natural talent gets you just so far, but then you've just got to put the jigsaw puzzle pieces um, together. So, so when you actually first started trying to make a living or trying to do this as a, as a professional athlete, 
you were what late teens what were you trying to achieve like what did you decide you were going to do because it obviously wasn't the stand-up paddling which obviously you're outstandingly successful in what were you actually yeah. trying to do well i guess it all comes back to as a kid i always wanted to be able to travel be able to experience new things be able to race and make a living from it they were the four things that i actually really wanted to do and it wasn't really about which sport i do it in i always thought it would be ironman but at the same time i was committing a lot of time to that and i didn't really see a future in it for me because i just i was i was pretty good but i wasn't as good as those next guys if i kept working at it maybe i could have been in the series but at the end of the day there wasn't really a financial incentive to to stay in that sport like it was quite it's quite a hard like those guys train so hard and probably don't get the rewards that they probably deserve because of the amount of work that they do but we were training like 20 25 hours a week and I think Corey, I remember talking to Corey about, he was actually in the series at the time and he worked out, he was making like 50 cents an hour or something like that because he was training that much. And he's an accountant, so he loves, yeah. his, he loves yeah. his numbers. <laughs> so he can't yeah. help himself. The accountant Yeah, so um, I guess I was, yeah, always chasing that dream. But then it was all about doing what I love to do and following my passions. Um, and at the time I was passionate about Ironman racing and then Cersei, I really like Cersei because I knew if I put the work in, I got the result. We didn't really get that from surf saving. Sometimes, like guys like Shannon Eckstein, obviously created their own luck and, and were basically performing well every single weekend. And he was a special character, but and still is. But I didn't really have that. And when I went into ocean ski paddling, I was like, if I work better at that, I'm going to get better and I'm going to keep performing and I'm going to keep pushing. And, it's, and I started to see results. I started like picking somebody. I think my first nemesis was like Paul Green. And then it was like, Mark Anderson, that would have been like Jeremy Cotter, that would have been like Hank McGregor, that would have been like Corey Hill. Like I was like always picking people off and I was able to achieve that through hard work, which I really enjoyed that process. So um, that's something that I saw, but it wasn't necessarily about making money because like I studied engineering when I left school for about 18 months and I was not very committed to it because I didn't love it. I could do it and it was like a secure job and I, I would have been able to, I don't know, maybe to be successful at that. But at the, at the same time, I was like, I'd rather work at North East Surf Club in the bar from 6 to 12 at night, go, wake up, go swimming in the morning, come home, go to sleep for a bit, run the next day. And that was what I actually enjoyed because I always loved to train and loved to push myself. So that was always my focus. So I went from like, I could potentially have a really secure job to taking a risk with this sporting thing. And I, I found different opportunities along the way. So I was earning like, I don't know, maybe 20 grand a year, which is just nothing. And, but I was loving what I did. So that was the main focus. And then moving into ocean ski paddling. And then I started ocean ski paddling. Then I started doing kayaking to be better at ocean ski paddling. Cause I was like, well, these kayakers have better technique than me. Cause I had a terrible technique. I was lifting my shoulders. I was like all over the place. Cause I was a swimmer. I was actually, so when I was doing Ironman, um, especially through the juniors, I was a good swimmer. So like, that was my best leg. And then I was like, well, if I can improve my ski, I'll go and do that while in this time that I've got a broken leg. And then, that became like a new passion. I was like, Oh, but then I, now I can go. I still remember the conversation I had with Corey. We were sitting down, um, I know one night and he rings me up and he goes, Hey mate, I'm going to go to Hong Kong and Dubai. Do you want to come? And I was like, no way. I was like, how much is that going to cost? I got no money in the bank, you know, like and I put the phone down. It was like one of those gut instinct feelings where you go, I really feel like I should do this. And then it was like that mentality that I kind of have now. It's like, okay, so here's the mountain. How do I get there? So, as, as I did at the time, dad always helped me out. So I like rang Greg and was like, Hey, can I, can I borrow five grand? I need, I need to go to these races. And he it's was like, no, it's no small amount of money, right? Like $5,000 no. when you ring your no. dad for five grand, you go, let me think about that. 
yeah and my family my and my parents have obviously always been my biggest supporters and he was like what's it for and i was like oh let's go to hong kong dubai i want to do these races and he's like oh yeah absolutely no worries just just pay me back and we'll, we'll work it out later on and yeah got the money in the account rang Corey back and i was like hey mate let's let's go let's do it and that's basically how this whole international racing thing started it's how i got into kayaks because i was kayaking to get better at um surf ski paddling and then i i started sup paddling because it was another opportunity that led off that that i thought i could be good at so it was just all about just chasing my opportunities. Sorry, I think I'd segue away from your question. No, that's okay. That's a, and it, it's it's quite interesting. So, just as a aside, where did you kayak on the Gold Coast? Uh, so originally, I started with John Newton down at Crumb and Creek Paddlers. So he was uh, one of the, I guess, the best development coaches on the Gold Coast at the time. And then I got probably too good for that squad. Um, and then I started going down to the QAS and training under Vince. Vince, uh, I can't say his last name, but he's a Hungarian uh, kayaker coach. Um, Joel Simpson spoke about him in one of the other podcasts that we uh, did. And I started trained under him a little bit and then got involved in the QAS system um, and probably did that for about three years, eventually training under Anders Gustafsson. And um, I made my first senior kayak team in 2014. So it probably took three years. Um, and the, and the, and the under-23 kayak team. So I raced in second for the under-23s. And then I then the spot became available when I was over there and I ended up going to the senior team. So I raced um, K2 1000 with Glenn Rip, and I think we finished eighth or ninth in the, in the under 23 world champs. And then I went with Jordan Wood, um, two-time Olympian now. He, me and him raced and we got, I think second or first in the B final, the K2 200, a K2 500. But what was cool about that was, it was just like, I love seeing the improvement. So I was never the best team boat paddler. So because I didn't have the background in, in kayaking, I had a little few imbalances that I just got created through my time racing and training and um, eventually had a few hip imbalances, which I, I know now, which I wish I knew back then. Cause I, I, I sort of, once I started coaching myself, I really worked out what my weaknesses were and, and fixed them. But um, going back then, it, I didn't really get much opportunity in team boats because you had a lot of paddlers who were paddling for 10 years, you know, like and then a paddle team boat's not good at it. And I, I jump in a team boat, be shit at it and then get booted out. So I never really got the opportunity. So I, I got forced into a team boat with Jordan Wood for two weeks and it was, yeah, a really cool experience. I think we improved 20 seconds over 500 meters in like two weeks, but just because I, I learned how to paddle, uh, I think. And then like, I was like the fifth best thousand paddler in the country in 2014. So, but then the opportunities a bit dried up a bit for me in that, in that kayaking. So uh, I sort of stepped away from it after I was sort of told that I wasn't in the Olympic plans for the squad. And I sort of didn't want to be one of those journeymen who sort of helped the other guys go forward. I want to find my own path. So I ended up picking up stand up paddling after that. And, and, and so what year was that? That was uh, 2015, 2016, you picked up stand up paddling? So, yeah, so the end of 2014, stop kayaking was, um, and then I was really focused on ocean ski paddling actually in 2000 and. Uh, 2015 so that was actually when uh, I think I won like bridge the beach back to back um, I went overseas I won the Durban uh, World Cup over there uh, I was second overall in the World Series in 2015 I think I got second in the Canadian champs second in the US surf ski champs I got third at um, Mauritius third at um, I think it was the gorge downwind um, like fourth at uh, the doctor fourth at uh, uh, I think fifth at ICF world champs and like there was a bunch of other results, but I was never outside the top five in that year in any race that I participated in. So it was a good, really good year for me for ocean ski paddling, but then an opportunity presented itself to do stand up, which I was sort of interested in. I didn't really know much about it, but I saw, I watched a, a video series called Positively Kai by one of my previous guests, Kyle Lenny, and 
he was sort of talking about like sup racing and how it's evolving, how it's getting exciting. I saw a few guys in Australia who were actually going away to this event called um, the Battle of the Paddle in California. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like a combine of my passions. It's, it's, it's sup paddling, it's traveling, it's racing. And there was quite a good amount of money. Like you were making, those guys were making 10 grand US, like if they were winning a race and they had salaries like from big companies and, it was like a, an opportunity to actually try and go forward with my racing. Cause I was 20, I was 24 at this stage and I was like, okay, so if I'm going to keep doing this, I need to sort of make an income out of it. So there was another opportunity to do this. And then obviously all the other stuff I do on the side is, is part and parcel of that. But then I started focusing on this, on this sup and I became world champion um, at the end of 2016 after my first year. And I was my own coach and it was kind of a really cool achievement because I was able to look at something uh, train for it, get better. Because like my first downwinds, I couldn't even stand up on the board for longer than two minutes. Like I have like oh. beginner paddlers who say like, cause I was a kayaker and I was a ski paddler. Cause I, I sort of moved into that. Cause I sort of didn't really, I didn't really follow the Ironman dream much longer after I sort of tried it a few times and my legs were just so weak. And I had no idea Like you think your legs are strong and you, you go for a run every now and then, but when you get on a stand up and you have to stand on your legs for, an hour and a half, two hours, four hours, whatever it is, you really learn that your legs aren't strong. And I had my first downwind from uh, Southport Spit to uh, Main Beach where I was living at the time with my family. And I could only paddle for two minutes and then I'd have to sit down on my board for two minutes and then I'd stand up again and do two minutes. Like, was, like me when I started paddling. Yeah, well, like it's, it's kind of... And, it, and it's really relatable to a lot of people because I know that everybody thinks that like, it's such a big mountain to climb, but if you just be consistent and you're sort of a bit determined with the whole process, you're able to achieve it. And I think that's a perfect example of that because I was able to go from an absolute numpty on a sub. Like I could, I used to, I remember going um, from the, the kayaking world champs and flying over to, I think it was Salt Creek and doing the, my first ever battle of the paddle. And I was a fast paddler. So I paddle in a straight line fast and then I get to a turn camp and I just fall in the water. I just couldn't, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew how to paddle. So and then I sort of knew, Sammy knew how to surf. I didn't know how to surf at 12, 6 or 14 on board. And then, yeah. How long do you think it took from when you started in 2015, the first time that you did that Southport to Main Beach and were playing around? How long do you think it took before you thought, gee, I've picked this up quite quickly and I think I can actually do quite well out of this, whether that be professional or not, but you can actually do quite well in the, in the sport compete, competing-wise? Well, I always, I'm kind of a bit confident, I guess I could say. I always think I can do well in anything I put my mind to. So I was able to basically do it re reasonably quickly. I was able to sort of put myself against guys in the, in the area who I thought were quite good, like at, at like local events. I think I was doing like Foster Cups and yeah. um, 12 Towers and like these different events around the place. But I guess I've always seen myself as somebody who, who can pick something up quickly, can analyze it, who can work out how to do it and then just build on that process and that's basically what I did I looked at where I was weak where I was where I was strong and sort of focused more on the weakness but then I knew how to train because I guess when you get in that QAS system um, especially on the Gold Coast when I was training that was I learned so much about what my body could do and how much I could push myself and that was like a huge huge leap in, I guess in my career and then obviously training under like someone like um, Pat O'Keefe at Northcliffe who was sort of like such a solid trainer um, I was probably didn't appreciate it at the time because I was a young buck sort of like trying to find his way. But um, now looking back, I think that sort of hardiness and resilience gave me the tools to be able to go out and train by myself and go out and do the things that I need to do. Because I know that 
the events are won before you even get to the start line. Yeah, and, it's, and it seems to be, I mean, certainly on all the, the athletes at the high end that I've spoken to, it's, as an athlete, it seems to be the really good ones have the great ability to either do it themselves or work with their coach to actually break down their weaknesses and then actually move the needle to improve on those, just increment by increment. Because once you get to a certain level, I'm assuming that it's just small steps, the big chunks such as being able to paddle from Main Beach to uh, Southport to Main Beach without actually having to sit down, and you, that all gets whipped pretty quickly. But it's it's breaking down the little things and the little the little tweaks that gets you to that next level. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, it, I guess everybody is very good. At the end of the day, like if you look at something like the doctor, like there's. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 guys coming in within a few minutes of each other. Like there's not that much difference, but the guys who are winning are always winning. The guys are coming like those top three places are always getting top threes. The guys getting top sixes are always getting top sixes. So like there's a, there's a pattern there. And if you can work out where you can get that 1%, 2% sort of better, that's where you're going to actually be able to make that, that jump because we can all train to a certain point, but then it's about the mentality that gets you to that next level or it's about that little bit more skill level or it's about more time in the runs or it's about, those little things that you can make better. Like you're talking about Trevojevic's brothers and saying how like the young guy was coming in. He's got so much to learn because you look at the, the team set up and you have like the experienced captains, the experienced players who are in the team to help those players through those mental stages, which is something that I guess I had to learn um, as, a, as, a, as an athlete as well. And you don't have the processes in place. You don't know how to understand. Like the hardest thing sometimes is actually controlling your emotions. Because sometimes I used to be able to not sleep the night before races because I was so nervous about what was going to happen. By the time I got to the race, I was exhausted. I was like, so I just worked so hard on being prepared for the race that I wasn't, I couldn't do the race because I was so tired. So like, it's like little things like that. that You've got to be able to to rise to the occasion. Now I don't even really think about the race until I get on the, on the start. I'm like, Oh, okay. So what am I doing here today? Let's just, okay. We've done this before. This is no problems. We'll get, we'll get through it. If I have a bad start, I can come back. If I have a great start, that's great. If I have a medium start, like I've, I've been in every situation now. So when I go into a race, it's just like, whatever happens, it's just like another training session and you just go out there, you do your best and you get, and you get it done if you can on the day. And, and, and in your training, so just talking through what you're mentioning then, are you in your training, um, training for certain situations so how much do you prepare so for argument's sake one of the races a couple of the races you did last year i watched on the video like incredibly close you know you're paddling for two or three hours or whatever the number might be and basically there's some guy on your tail or you're on somebody else's tail and you know i think we spoke and you said look i actually missed a, a blade at some at, at a certain point and i nearly fell in and it was very come on been in france i think and you were very close you know as your heartbeat goes up and your body starts to degrade because of just pure tiredness, emotionally and physically, do you train mentally to certain trigger points to how you think or towards the end, you know, basically who's going to be there, how you, how it's going to happen for different scenarios. How do you play that out? Do you do that prior or do you train for that sort of thing? I think the best way to get better at that is actually to, to do racing, as I spoke about before, like I've done a hell of a lot of racing. I've never been afraid to turn up and get flogged or turn up and um, not do my best or turn up when I'm, I'm not um, ready to race. Like at the start of last year, I went to an event called um, 12 Towers. I had an intercostal tear in my, in my ribs. I hadn't trained for about two months, but I went there just to get myself flogged because I needed to get myself motivated to be able to race that year. And I probably had my best year 
straight after that. So I went to that race, got seventh or eighth. And then the rest of the year, I think I didn't finish outside the top three in anything I started. Um, but I think it's important about one, racing, but two, yes, training for those preparations. Like I have a, a group um, booth training. I have a whole um, community and I, I speak to them every couple of weeks. And one of the questions came up the other day from one of the top guys that I actually coach. I actually coach a fair few, some of the elite guys that I race against. And his question was, how do you go hard your whole race and then push to the next level? And it's like, well, I train for that because every session that we used to do like in, in surf life saving or, or swimming or whatever it was when I was doing it, even though you instinctually went harder on that last effort, you went harder, like those last two efforts, you really pushed through that barrier. And some people used to get upset by that. Like you'd be doing like a, I don't know, let's say like a 70 or 80% session and you're doing like a four minutes or three minutes or whatever like that. But on the last one, it was always a race. It was always to see who could beat the other guys at the end. And some guys thrived in those conditions and some guys didn't. But the guys who generally won races were the guys who were like smashing themselves to make sure that they won the last effort so they had bragging rights for that session. And that was, and that was the background I came from. And that's why I try and think about when I'm, when I'm coming into those final stages of racing and just knowing that I'll really hurt myself and kill myself to get to that finish line. And as long as I know I've done as much as I can to get to that finish line, and if I make a mistake, that happens. But as long as I've done the, the best I can, I win, regardless of what the result is. And, and if, you, um, if I just look at uh, the, the race in France last year, and it was neck and neck, um, how long was that race in terms of time? So that was the Nautic uh, crossing. It was about 10, 11 kilometers. Uh, it was 6 a.m. It was about six degrees. Um, and we were probably paddling on the River Seine. And I actually got food poisoning just before that event. And this was one of like, yeah. the, I guess, the mental side of things I'm talking about because I was hugging the toilet bowl Friday night before the sprints. And I couldn't eat anything, couldn't hold anything down for 24 hours. And I was like, I can't race, I can't race. And I just got there. Chris was like, just, just go, just participate. So I got through the sprints. I, I basically did one heat and got knocked out. But I got enough enough sort of uh, placing where I could sort of be competitive the next day and went home, ate again, still felt like shit because obviously once you spend 24 hours food poisoning, you're not really feeling 100% in a foreign country. And I got to the start line Sunday morning and I think a lot of people knew that I'd been sick and their goal was sort of to blow me off the line and sort of put me to bed really early. But I was just like, if I can just hang in, if I can just hang in, I've got one, maybe two sprints in me. And I just sat back, I sat back, I sat back. And then I just went and I was like, you just go and you just keep going until you can't go anymore. And it got me to the finish line first, but yeah, it was racing against Lincoln Jews. That's right. And, and, and let's talk the last kilometer. Are you quite mentally coherent or are you starting to get fuzzy and it's instinct or is it quite, um, you know, I, I always, you know, you, you, you look at a Formula One racing driver and I, th I think a lot of the difference is they're reactionary. The faster they go, the harder um, points they're trying to get to breaking later. Some people's brains work better than others. Um, and that, that I think in a lot of regards is the difference, you know, how it all works up here and you're processing. A kilometre to go, how are you, what are you thinking? You're neck and neck. There's a big difference between first and seconds, gold or silver or... I don't know what's first prize, by the way, and second prize for that race. Uh, it was about it was six grand, and then six grand US, and then there was obviously some bonus on top of that. So it was yeah, it, it's real, it was obviously real, that's real currency, ten thousand dollars. You know, that's there's a big difference between first and second. So what what are you thinking of that, Katie? Go. I'm just thinking it's my job. It's my job to finish this race first. Um, and I know Lincoln was actually paddling a starboard at the time. So one of my thoughts was I can't let 
another star another starboard beat me because this guy isn't even on starboard and it kind of makes me look silly if, if somebody from start somebody who's like normally paddling i think he was paddling deep at the time but he couldn't get his board if he wins on the board that i sort of like helped create and design and then he comes in just like beats me on the day and he was he's a fantastic paddler and he's beat me in a lot of races and sometimes he's beat me and, and I, sometimes i beat him but um it's just all about just committing to the finish line and I was hurting, I was cramping, I was like, like obviously I hadn't, didn't have any energy left, but it was just like, just really just focusing on average pace, being efficient, not making a mistake, trying to get to the, the finish line, making sure you know where he is, making sure that you can see, because we were obviously weaving in and out through a thousand paddlers. So there's a lot of other people around. So you had to make sure that you weren't getting in the way of anybody. Um, there was obviously a big side wind. There was a current. There was like all these different elements that you had to um, contend with. So I guess that's why the mindset is constantly just firing. You just never stop. Everyone always thinks distance races are boring. I reckon they're the most exciting races because as Ivan Lawler said the other day when I was talking to Kim, we were talking about the game and the tactics and actually racing in packs and, and having to, to push the line when you have to push the line or making a break or making something like and make, creating an opportunity out of nothing. Like those are the things that excite me. I I find those type of races one of the most exciting things. People think, oh, yeah, they're just all sitting packs. But it's like, it's just, it, there's so much going on. And when you push to that finish line and you're giving everything you got, there's just no better feeling because you just know you're leaving everything out there. Well, especially, like, I think also, too, you know, that in all sports, you know, there's so much material available for everybody to make themselves a better athlete, certainly at the pointy end. I mean, if you, if you go back, you know, 30 years ago and you look at the Bathurst 1000 car race, you know, the most iconic car race in Australia. And, you know, Peter Brock would win, in some cases, by three, four, five laps, um, you know, through a whole eight or nine hours of motor racing. You think, oh, well, you know, he's obviously had the better car and the better drive. N nowadays, and if you go back, if you look at exactly the same court, the track, exactly the same sport, um, and you look at the last 10 races, uh, the winner basically is won by less than five seconds to the guy behind. So... If you are not on your game for the whole six or seven hours of that race in any way, you're finished. And I'm sure it's exactly the same is the long distance. You had Corey and, and Hank paddling Molokai. I think I might have said it. You know, they, they paddled, raced against each other the last three races and 52 kilometres by three and it's less than a minute or something in total times if you accumulatively add them up. It's just mind-numbing, 155, 156 kilometres and less than a minute. So it's probably, you know, again, from you, I'm imagining it's exactly the same. The, the long-distance races, it's, it's just action-packed and you're thinking all the way. You cannot fall asleep for a minute. Oh, absolutely not. You can't, like, rest, really. Like, people think that you sit in packs and you're resting. Well, I definitely am not. I'm constantly, like, working out equations in my head about, like, so this person does this and I have to do this. And if I'm too far back, do I have to come back forward? And then if there's an opportunity on this next turn, like what's going to happen when we turn around, is there going to be people in the way? Is there going to be a current? Is there going to be different wind? Like what sort of opportunities can be presented from that? Am I going to get a backwash? Like, is there um, different opportunities coming forward? Like is someone getting tired? Like, um, like making sure they have a pretty good um, knowledge of the pack. Like, and then who's behind me? Can I do this? If, if like somebody's really fast and behind me, I can't, I'm not necessarily going to break on them, but, if somebody else has worked really hard from my way back and come up and back on my tail wash, maybe there's an opportunity to break them. It's just like, it's just constantly on. Like it just, people just think, yeah, it's so, it's so exciting. I actually love it. I think it's one of the most, the best races you can do because you just, there's just so much going on and you've got so many opportunities to rectify different things. And 
there's so many opportunities you can take and some you don't, some you can. Yeah, it's just, it's just a mind game. And, and just um, in terms of the, uh, the stand-up paddleboard world, um, what sort of, some of the numbers on it, you know, what, what, how many races a year, what would be roughly total prize money, could you make a living out of it professionally, is it getting bigger and bigger, are more sponsors coming in, How's, how does that sort of work in, in the, well, there's, the, the world of stand-up? There's races, you could race five times every weekend in some place around the world, like there's definitely always a race happening, it's quite a it's quite a um, inclusive sport as well because you can paddle a stand up on in the surf. You can paddle on the river. You can paddle in the ocean. You can paddle it. I don't know in your pool if you want to. Like there's wherever there is water, it's there is a board and a device for it. So and it's quite recreational as well. So you've got quite a recreational market that sort of feeds into the elite market. So you have that sort of top down structure, which are obviously like any big sport needs to have to be successful. Um, at the moment, the landscape is a bit confusing. Um, you have like a, you have a few different tours, like a privately run. So you have an APP world tour, which is like the world series that I follow. And you have a European tour, um, which is like the Euro, I've won that three times, which is like, probably, this is the biggest tour in, in Europe and arguably one of the biggest tours in the world. Then you have, um, ICF world championships, which is the international canoe federation that runs kites. They've just come in the past two years. I won that world title last year. And then you have the ISA who've been around for a little bit longer. But technically, none of those federations have much to do with the individual sport. The individual events where you'll have like a thousand people turn up um, and they're more longer distance events where people go and do them as a challenge. So, and then you have like the downwind events in Hawaii and you have, but you can definitely make it um, a profession, but you've got to probably be doing a few different things like I do. I have the coaching and I have obviously myself as an athlete, as, as an ambassador for a few different brands. I have... Um, obviously, hopefully, prize money coming in, um, and then there's so there's, there is enough to make it a living because that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Um, it's just about how you approach it and making sure that you're doing the best in, in a few different things and you're able to get it done. But hopefully, it gets bigger down the track. Well, I'm sure it absolutely will. The more, more, the more eyes that are on it, the more people get to to see it. And I think some of the things that you've done in the last six or eight weeks with the interviews and it, it all brings attention to to the world of stand-up and to, to ocean paddling. And it's quite interesting, I think, you know, that a lot of people, the, the, the money has diminished in, in the iron man, iron woman world and, and a couple of other areas have really developed and grown, such as the ocean paddling or such as the stand-up. And I think there's a lot of crossover that's happening and certainly a lot of people thinking about it. I mean, surf lifesaving is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Don't think we'll ever go away and I, I, I think there'll always be a series of sorts. Um, but these things sort of come in waves and it's um, certainly as an observer looking from the outside in both sports, social paddling and stand-up and there is a bit of a crossover there and I think what you've been able to achieve is just amazing in a five-year period. I mean, you know, multiple world titles and national titles and just incredible. But also, to, it's very similar to, it seems very similar to ocean paddling. So that race in France, how many people raced on that at 6 a.m.? Yeah, so in, in Paris, there was about a thousand people on the start line, but you also had, so I think it sells out. It's like quite a community-based event. So 600 of those people probably are just there to have fun. They race up in their, they race up in their astronaut suits. They race up as Star Wars characters. They race up as 
they, they, they just like dress up and have fun and it's just about just getting on big like they paddle like big starships which like have like 10 people on them or they they paddle in groups or it's just it's quite an amazing event it's quite fun to be a part of and you have obviously that side of things then you have the elite amateurs i guess that you have like the yeah. 40s and 50s i guess what you'd look like what it would look like in surf ski um, and they race really hard and, and that's really like obviously important to, to win and in europe i think stand-up paddling is getting very very big at the moment it's a lot of people racing a lot of people excited about it and then you have the elites which is probably only about 50 people um which is obviously a bit less but that's like any sport you have sort of your elite and you have your tears down but it's it's yeah it's really cool to be a part of those type of races and i think that's what's exciting you have like i don't know myself or, or one of the other big names in sup on the same start line as as i don't know just a guy who turns up from from paris who wants to have a paddle in, in, down the river Seine, and he's racing against the elite guys and it's i think it's, it's really well that's that that's the cool thing about you know you look at um the gorge race that carter johnson puts on you know there's a thousand people to that well you're talking a thousand people in paris it's just amazing right or what we're trying to achieve with the uh Sean Partners Race Week in Perth, you know, I think last year, oh, I don't know what the number was, five or six hundred or something. We think we can get it to a thousand. And it's just, yeah. that's the wonderful thing. That's the wonderful thing about both sports, I think. You get to, to mix, and I've said it before, and I think you've said it multiple times in your interviews, the professionals with the amateurs, and it's a, it's just such a such a great thing. And you, you compete at your own individual level, which, you know, whomever is next to you at, at the time. Um, and just a, a couple of other things, and we, as we sort of round out the interview, you, you, you um, uh, designing your own, um, you know, paddleboard with starboard or, or, or helping in design process of blades, etc. How's that eventuated? How have you enjoyed that process? And has there been a lot of change in development in the last five years in, in, in the stand-up world in that area? Oh, I think definitely. Um, like, for example, with the, the MB paddle range, I, I wanted to design a paddle that had less cavitation, that had more grab at the catch. It sort of really suited my stroke because I think in 2016 when I came in, I sort of redefined the way that stand-up paddling is paddled. Like, it, it was a lot of uh, different technique. I won't go into it too much, but it was, a, it was a very different technique when I started the sport. And I tried to integrate the things that I'd learned from, like, surf ski and, and, uh, and, and the kayak and those types of things. And make a stroke that was more forward. It was more power on the catch. It was like the similar, similar way that you taught to paddle in the Sursky. I made it to sort of, um, to, to race on the stand up, and that I wanted to create a paddle that allowed me to do that. And I was able to do that successfully with the guys at Gower. And, um, that was, that was obviously a really big achievement for me. And I think coming from a, a guy who was very interested as a kid with building things. And I wanted to be a builder when I left school. Uh, I want to leave school in like year nine and become a builder. But my parents were like, no, you're too, you're too clever. You've got, to, you've got to stay in school. So I finished, I finished school and then I went to university, studied engineering. So I was always interested in building and creating and um, doing that type of thing. So I guess it's just like a vice now for me to be able to help create. And now I get the opportunity to go over with Starboard uh, each year and, and design the, or help design the new race range and give my ideas and, I guess it's, it's really nice to know that when you get on a start line, you've had sort of a say over so many different components of your race that like you've got, your, you've had a say over your board. So if, if, if you, um, if you fail, it's, it's your fault because you didn't think of that thing. Like you should have been, oh, it's nobody to blame and same with the paddle. Like I, I helped design that paddle. So it's like, that's my fault. I write my own training program. So like, I like having accountability to myself and I like knowing that I have as much control as I possibly can. So when I get on that start line, I have the total accountability. And I, so I know mean, I feel. 
so you've enjoyed the uh, the design work that you've done. Is that something that you think you'll continue to evolve with and, and to grow into um, in the future? Yes, absolutely. I think I enjoy designing. I enjoy seeing shapes and, and creations go faster. I, I, I like it being more user-friendly. I like seeing uh, different systems be created. So it's a, it's a totally a fun process. And I guess it's a very rewarding process, but it can be very difficult at the same time. Like you don't go over there every time and have leaps and bounds in, in design and technology. You, sometimes it's just a total failure. We had a board that we tried to create a couple of years ago. It just didn't happen. And I'm just getting shelled. But so this year we went over and we like made a few tweaks and made the boards better. And it was, it was awesome. I have a good team. I work with like Ollie and Sven and Daniel and Connor and all these different guys, but it's nice to be part of that process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like the, the surf ski world, you know, paddled a few skis from sort of 10 years ago, eight years ago, you know, you look at all of the development that comes, there's just so much new development coming through, stability, um, all of those things, rocker, just all of the different, you know, the, the actual, um, uh, the, the, the make of them in the materials, there's just so much development. It's quite, quite amazing. But um, I think that's really interesting. And, and, and tell me your online business. So just, you know, how did you start that? I know that's grown exponentially and for anyone's listening, they should be signing up to uh, um, some sessions with you or a program, but that's been something you've been very passionate about. Just, just talk us through that. I think it comes down to just being wanting to be able to help people have better experiences. You see a lot of people at races and they're always like, Oh, I wish I could get better. Like, could you help me, could you help me write a program? And, and that was sort of sort of how it started. Originally I I'd sort of, put up an Excel spreadsheet and, and send them a program that I sort of, I think that I would do. And basically I basically coach people the way I would coach myself, but I also uh, factor in a lot of their lifestyle factors and make sure that they're getting the amount of work done that they can in the, in the lifestyle that they live. So if they're working nine to five every day and they got kids soccer and school and everything after, after work, you can't really train in the afternoon. So you might be able to train like five times a week in the mornings or something like that. But we try and make sure that you get the best opportunity to achieve that result that you might want to achieve for, I don't know, Molokai or Eurotour or um, all these different types of events. But that's been just a real passion for me. I've just really enjoyed being able to, to help people get better. And I think that's what it comes down to for most of the time. Like I always enjoyed sort of training and, and training with other people and, and watching them and analyzing their stroke, because that's what I've always done for myself, trying to make sure that I got better and like by learning from others and, and seeing different things and patterns that are, are created. Like I have a little squad now in, in WA actually, and we were training yesterday morning and I was sort of like breaking down everyone's strokes in the office session. They were like, we thought we were paddling well. And I was like, well, like, I, I can't help but help, you know, like I really want to see you guys get better. And then they work on those things and they get better. And it's just something that's, I don't know, internally inside me that I, I love to see improvement. And if I can help foster that now, I sort of have the, the confidence to be able to do it maybe Maybe when I was 17, 18, I was looking at other people. I'd be like, oh, you can't tell anyone what to do. And then people started asking me to tell them what to do. And I was like, okay, maybe I can take this into a, a different level and just using that entrepreneurial sort of spirit and just trying to create things that help people and be able to keep doing more of it. Well, I mean, and I think also too, you know, the, the, the challenge is I was out paddling yesterday morning out of Collaroy with Dean Gardner and, um, and Kendrick Louie. And as I was coming in, Kendrick said, you know, pull more from your elbows, do this, do that. And it was like rather cool, right? Because I think, as you said, you, you, you guys probably see yourself as normal people. We look at you and say, you know, you're freaks of nature and, and, and in terms of what you've done athletically, you know, um, you know, for instance, you know, you're a multiple world champion. You've done amazingly well at the disciplines you've chosen. And so for the Nufties, 
like me, when Kendrick says, you know, do this, do that, and we're just sort of paddling in and he says it obscurely, it's one, it's a bit of a thrill, but two, it's coming from a strength where, you know, he's won multiple events, he's the, he's the um, you know, current uh, national uh, Ironman champion. Um, so you sort of sit there and you go, well, it's coming from a position of strength. So it's a little bit like you. you, you you're giving advice online through your training programs or the friends, and to us, it's just such a huge benefit because it's, it's, it's really like having, you know, like in my younger day, a tennis coach or someone looking from the outside in and you're coming from a position of strength where you actually, you've done it, you've been there, you know it. Um, and I think the online world is quite interesting, right? So you, you've got clients all over the world, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. Basically um, on every continent, um, multiple people in Europe. Actually, most of my business is, is overseas, is mainly right. Europe and America. And, and t- tell me, how does it work just Quickly, we're doing this podcast and you're doing it. So you might as well give a plug for your own online business. But um, just how do I find it? What do I do? Where do I go for that? Um, so if you just check out www.michael-booth.com.au and there's a, a section there on booth training. But basically, uh, it, it's been mostly centered around personalized training programs. So I work with you exactly um, on what you want to achieve and, and work out um, how we can train the best we can given your current circumstances, depending on work, family, and all that holistic sort of balance and making sure that, and we sort of like have a lot of communication and making sure that you're getting your training sessions done and all that type of thing. And then you have the, the structured training plans where you're sort of like, they're only based around um, an event and there's sort of a generic plan, but you can jump in with a, with a squad essentially. And they're all trained towards the same goal, whether it, I don't know, it might be the doctor, you know, like something like that, or the strong partners race week, you're trained towards that. So I create a plan for that. There's a bunch of different levels where you can really focus down on that. Then you have technique analysis. So you take videos of yourself and then I'll take a video call with you and we'll walk through your technique or we, I can do an analysis if that's not possible uh, via a video. Um, and then there's also like clinics and workshops when, when I'm at events. I um, obviously were able to set those up, run through technique and actually like you get that one-on-one time experience. Um, and there's just a whole host of different things that you do and you try and just work out how to give the, the best uh, level of, of support to these different paddlers around the place. Yeah, well, it's very, look, very cool. And I, I know certainly, um, you know, I know you're part of the Shore and Partners race team and, and uh, we share a lot of the photos and information and follow your journey around the world as, as, uh, as you go to different, um, different events and, and, and win certain titles or compete in them. And part of that journey or being part of that journey, certainly for, um, for Shore and Partners and for, the, for its staff has been absolutely fantastic. I know a few people that are on the online that do the online um, coaching with you or training for a certain event or whatever it might be that, that really rave about it and speak highly. So again, a real credit to you. And I think the one thing that is, is great, if I look at Michael Booth and I look at Michael Booth as the person and the athlete and the whole package, I think what you've done is you, you like, it seems like you like to achieve, you like to do things um, uh, differently. So if I look at, you know, you've crossed over from um, Ironman to surf ski and then to stand up, um, you ticked all the boxes, you want to travel the world, you want to earn an income, you want to achieve, you've got into design work, you've got online, an online business, which by all accounts seems to go very, very well. Um, you're sort of at a happy spot in your life or still more to achieve from an athletic perspective? Well, do you know what? It's been very interesting, obviously, with this COVID-19 thing and obviously everything changed over, almost overnight. Like I was going away for four months. I had like 10 races planned. I was going to America. I was going to Europe. I was going to Hawaii and trying to, to better my performance from last year. And I, there was all these things planned, but then all of a sudden it stopped. And I was like, okay, 
what do I do? Like, do I just sit down and, and do nothing? And I was like, no, what can I do? Like what, what exciting things like that I have put on the back burner that I can probably do now. And I saw it as like an opportunity to actually create new things. And this, this podcast came about because I originally wanted to actually um, create video logs. So like I was, I was struggling doing the typing stuff. I was like, I can actually talk on a camera. Like I talk to people to death all the time. Like, like people like hang up on me cause I've been talking to them for like an hour on the phone. So I was like, maybe I can get in front of the camera and actually talk to everybody and just let them know like how I'm going before a race, after a race. And I give my sponsors more exposure. And then because that sort of couldn't happen because I wasn't racing, I was like, okay, maybe I can use this as a vehicle to actually continue to support my sponsors and my partners who've supported me for so long. And now I probably don't have as much value to them because, hey, I can't race anymore. And that's where I derived a lot of my value. But then I created, a new, I had this new platform all of a sudden and now I got more opportunities because I can speak to so many amazing people and, and learn from their successes and their stories. And there was just so much to, to learn. And I, I don't think there's, and he's stopping. I have a very active mind. I was saying this to, to Corey actually yesterday and I said, I just can't like sit down and do nothing. Like I, I really want to just keep myself moving forward and whether that's actually financially or it's actually just um, by learning and, and creating and experiencing, they're the things that I really value. So I, I try and keep pushing that forward and actually creating new opportunities for myself or seeing an opportunity and grabbing it with both hands. And I've been very lucky to, to work with Shore and Partners over the last four years. And after meeting you and Alan and, and Earl, uh, sorry, you, Alan and um, Mal on the boat going over to Rottnest in 2016. And it just, I don't know, it wasn't like, it's never been for me, a sponsorship's always been a, a two-way street and it's been about involving each other in each other's journeys and actually helping bring each other up and, and creating new exciting things for each other. Like we can all help each other in different ways, but it's all about moving forward together, appreciating the journey together and, and actually just experiencing things and, and just showing that it's, there's more to life than just racing and sport. There's, there's all this other stuff going on and let's, let's share these stories, let's share these experiences and just creating these ex awesome, um, awesome things that we get to do each and every day. Well, the, the, look, the series that you put together has been on a multiple levels, absolutely first class. It's probably some of the best interviews that I think I've seen, certainly in our arena. Um, been great value for your sponsors. I think it's a credit to you. And I, I often talk about as a sponsor myself, um, you know, how do you, um, how do you actually see value in it? And I think things like what you've done for your sponsors is just absolutely first class. And I think also too, for the sponsors of all the athletes that you've interviewed that have showcased their sponsors on it. You know, I, I, I I've just got this great desire myself, as I've said to you, and we've spoken about many times of just lifting the professionalism of certainly the ocean paddling world and to try to get other people to come in, look professional, feel professional. You know, I saw yesterday, which really lit me up, actually. I was pretty excited about it. But um, All Wave um, actually showcased some of their new racing kit for the upcoming season um, and All Wave surf skis. And it was just fantastic. You know, the All Wave racing team looked absolutely trico. You know, they've obviously got a couple of gun paddles there with Jackson Collins as the lead. You know, he's... He's the, uh, he's the one that I think is going to give it to Corey and a few others this year, no doubt. But just to see, again, just professionalism coming into it. I think what you've done with the series, the way you've approached the whole thing, um, yourself in the podcast and how you present yourself is a real credit to you. Um, what, what, what if I was to say to you over the next 12 months, and I mean, obviously, it's a little bit difficulty with international travel is going to be difficult. I'm not going to put yourself, I'm not going to put you on the spot and say, what do you like better, stand-up paddling or ocean ski paddling? But... How do you find, do you find it helps both disciplines doing both? Do you find one lacks the other? How do you, 
you know, just walk me through both of those disciplines from your perspective, your passions for both, etc. Before I get to that question, um, just on your point just before, I think it's all about leading by example. And it's something that I guess you've really helped in the sport. Like I think back in 2014 and 15, Corey, Corey and I started putting logos on our shirts because we thought, hey, we were like, we're screen printing them ourselves and we're putting them on because we're like, maybe we can create more opportunity and exposure for our sponsors. Let's do this. And um, and then obviously you came, you came into the sport and actually increased the branding again and, and really forced that professionalism in people. And it's all about leading by example, right? Like we can't, you can't text everybody and go, Hey guys, you need to wear shoes on the podium. You need to wear, like, you need to look professional and you wear a college shirt. You need to put logos on your shirt. But if everybody starts doing it, it becomes like a norm. And then everybody wants to be a part of it and wants to look professional. It actually brings the whole sport up because you like look at individuals they're getting sort of um, helped out and supported. But if you, if everybody does it, then you bring in more businesses or more support or more community or more paddlers and it actually brings everything up and it actually creates a, a really cool platform for everybody to, to, to perform off. But anyway, to, to your question going forward uh, about surf ski and stand up. Um, oh, and I, I'm foiling now. I've, I've paddled a little bit outrigger. I actually just love testing myself in different environments and learning new skills. And that's something that, I really prided myself on being able to jump in a craft and, and work it out. And I think from coaching and training myself, I've been able to learn these different tools that I use to make myself a better paddler, no matter what sport I'm doing. Like even running, I like watch technique running videos. Like I was training for the cool and get a goal and one of the QIS coaches, I won't go into it too much, but she was a, an ex uh, Australian champion runner. So I went on the treadmill one day after the gym and I was like, can you teach me how to run? Cause I just, I don't know how to do it properly, you know? Like, so that's just something that's always been ingrained in me, but uh, being able to balance the two, I think, really helps keep the mind fresh. Being able to to do stand up, do a stand up race, and then being able to jump onto a ski. Like obviously, I have to have a focus at the moment, which is is the stand up paddling, which is where I'm deriving a lot of my income and my sort of opportunities. But I, I do like to really jump into the surf ski. Like even going to Molokai last year, doing the Shore and Partners Race Week, I, I do my best that I can given the circumstances I'm in. But it it is an interesting one that I always think back on because in that 2015. I had my best year ever on a surf ski. Like I wasn't outside the top five. I finished second in the World Series. I think it was to Corey. I won the Australian Ocean Racing Series, I think in 2014. I, I was like pretty much top three in every race. I won a couple of my first international races and then I stopped. So it's like, oh, maybe like if I did things differently, but I think I made the right, the right decisions at the time to create more opportunities for myself. But maybe this year I can do more surf ski racing because I probably won't be able to travel internationally by the looks of things and maybe i can do a lot more focus on australian ocean racing series maybe some events in some key countries that if we're allowed to go to them so i don't think that the, i think the passion is still really there and i'm really excited about racing I'm excited about the community and my favorite thing about all these events and all these races is actually finishing the race and having a beer with everybody and talking story and and being the guy who just like wants to hear about different people and, and that was sort of a byproduct of the the podcast but that was always something that I loved about ocean ski paddling. Like, no matter who you are or what, what um, age you are, where, what sort of um, background you're from, we go all go into that, that room after the race and we always have a chat and have a laugh and, and sort of catch up. And that's, that's the experience that I really enjoy. So if I can get that experience from any sport, I'll, I'll be chasing it. Yeah. And, and from, a, from, a, uh, from a competitive athlete's perspective, uh, maybe spend a few minutes. How have you seen the stand-up, uh, paddle world from a professional sport evolve um, and similarly even maybe just touch on the ocean paddling you know has it evolved have both evolved to the point where you can earn a living out of it or you know just touch on stand-up can you 
can you get enough sponsors to actually assist you with your world travels? Can you make a living out of it? You know, how do you see it sort of heading over the next five to 10 years? Well, I guess it depends on what you call a living, but there is definitely a lot of guys, probably like 20, 20 guys out there in the stand-up paddling world who actually are full-on stand-up paddle racers um, and probably yeah. 10 to 15 girls as well. And that's, and that's their job. That's their profession. That's how they, they make it. They make their bread and butter. Um, how has, how has like stand up evolved? I think, so I've actually learned a lot from doing these podcasts and speaking to people who were around in the early days of stand up paddle racing, which was like around 2008, 2009. And I guess it really, it really peaked around 2014 in the U S but it's sort of like any business and any sort of economic time, for example, like there's going to be ebbs and flows and you've seen in stand up paddling that it really exponentially grew in the U S through to about 2014, 2015. But now what you're seeing is actually a more of a bigger growth in, in Europe and you're seeing, but you're seeing like a lot of a bigger racing side. I think you're seeing a lot more people turning up to events and um, there's, a, there's events popping up here, there and everywhere. And you've got like good money coming into the sport. And I think it's an exciting time. And I hope it's really good for the juniors coming through and like hopefully there's better platforms and more clubs and more pathways created through hopefully some of my influence as well, trying to make sure that the, the sport's in a better place than what I started at. Um, when yeah. I first came into it um, in 2014-15. Uh, for surf ski, it, it's it definitely... Feels Sorry. Yeah, keep going. I was going to say surf ski. It feels similar to, with surf ski as well. I think surf ski has grown a hell of a lot. Like if you talk to, to guys like Dean, uh, I was speaking to him the other day and he was talking about through the, the 80s and 90s, like Molokai was pretty much the only international race you had. Like that was, that was the be all and end all. That was the world championships. Like if you went there, you won, then you were the best paddler in the world because there wasn't any other international opportunities. But through to the, the, the early 2000s, late 2000s, you had a lot of new events popping up around the place that you had like Euro challenges and Mauritius and um, events in the US. And that's where, where like a lot of people started to be able to, to really grow up. And then you had like um, 2010, 2020. Now it's, it's actually grown a hell of a lot more because when I first started paddling, like you didn't really see juniors at events. You didn't see the numbers. I don't think at the events, you don't see the professionalism that you have at the events now, the prize money, the, the investment from sponsors, like the, the general brands and people who are interested. And I think it's definitely been growing a hell of a lot. And yeah, like and even having like news sites being created and, uh, big sponsors like like Shoran Partners and, and Investec being involved. Like you sort of had that vision from Dean Gardner maybe 20 years ago that he really wanted to see all this happen. It probably took a lot longer than he wanted it to, but hopefully it's something that's sustainable going forward and we can obviously create better and newer opportunities and, and more sort of focus on that experience type of events like the Shoran Partners Race Week. And I think there's, I think the sport's in a very, very good position and I think it's in a, in a, in a position of growth, um, especially after we get through this COVID crisis. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I, I, I know, certainly from my perspective, as we've sort of channeled along, I mean, we've, if you just look at the Shore Partners Race Week, um, we've committed for the next two years. Um, so let's fingers crossed that it's on. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I keep saying to Dean, would you just get out there and promote it and say that it's definitely going to happen? He said, oh, I'm just a bit nervous, but, um, you know, that they might change the social, or keep the social distancing rules that it won't happen. But I'm very confident by the time we get to November, they'll be the WA uh, race week. But, you know, that's $150,000 prize money just for that week. I think it's five or six races for the week in Ocean Paddling. Like, that's a bloody lot of money. Um, you know, if I look at the Shore and Partners race team, you know, when we approached Oakley this year, Oakley Sunvas is the cover forward. Again, they contributed money to the team and, and, and they were in. You know, if we would have approached them three years ago, four years ago, they would have laughed. They would have just not had interest. And it was quite interesting all the things that has come about as a result of promoting the races, 
your podcast, you know, multiple people are doing something similar, you know, Oscar's doing a great series as well, you know, Haley's done some great things, Jimmy Walker's done some great interviews, just all that promotion and the online media platforms of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the like has just really seems and feels like it's allowed us to bring more money and more sponsors into the sport and certainly more attention where people look at it going, this could be pretty cool. And whether or not it gets to the days of Uncle Toby's where we're talking millions, who knows, but certainly from a zero base of a few years ago to now sort of prize money, you know, getting into the hundreds of thousands of dollars is, is pretty exciting for the athletes, I would have thought. Oh, it's huge. Like, I think before the last financial crisis, the only event that had that type of money on it was the Dubai Shamal, and that was maybe 20,000 US for the win. And but that, that sort of only came around for two or three years and wasn't sustainable. But now we've got sort of a sustainable sponsor, insurance partners, which we're, and the sport is very, very lucky to have someone like you pushing it. And it brings the, like, it's not just about like having a sponsor, it's about bringing the whole sport up as a whole and having other people interested to come in because you guys have been around for so long. Like it's all about that, that longevity and, and that loyalty that you speak about a lot. Like it's about being like committing to something and being consistent with it and staying with it for a long period of time. And I think that's going to help see the sport go forward more and more. Um, as long as the, the, the key um, partners or the key um, stakeholders in the sport keep pushing it forward. Like as you're talking about, like you have Oscar and, and Haley and, and Hank even jumping on like the, the SA uh, canoeing thing and you have all these different people jumping out and giving the, the voice to the sport they're actually encouraging more people to be involved encouraging more people to buy skis encouraging people to get out on the water and participate and that is the major thing like it's all about leading by example and really pushing things up so like it's a it's about every individual in the sport really like it goes from like the 16 year old girl who's getting because she wants to represent australia in the in the icf champs or, but then it also goes to the the 85 year old uh, bloke who wants to buy the the blue fin and, and paddle his first doctor and finish it you know or the overweight guy who comes in and, and loses weight like all these people need to be part of this community and actually promote the sport and actually be part of it because that's how you get true growth like is actually the whole community like it shouldn't be like put down to a big sponsor like sean partners it shouldn't be put down to elite athletes like Corey or hank or macca or all those guys like it should be everybody should be doing their bit each and every day to help promote the sport to get one more person into their training squad to get one more person to come to the Sean partners race week to get, to get like one more sponsor on board, whether that be like a, a hat sponsor or a, a, I don't know, like, or a, a big financial sponsor. Like it's all these key little moments and key little things that everybody can be doing. They'll actually make the sport into something like the uncle Toby's. And I don't see it as being far fetched because you talk to someone like, uh, I saw to Raman Anderson the other day, who was talking about kayaking. He said, back in those days they had like, 12 heats like of, of K1000 paddlers. Like there was a big community, but like things like ocean ski paddlers has basically taken all of those paddlers now. And like, even like for the surf lifesaving, like a lot of those surf lifesavers are actually getting involved in ocean racing and you have like, or, or getting involved in stand up paddling or all these different sports where it's a bit more of, I guess, exciting and new and, and it's actually really building everything up. So I think the sport's got an exciting future, but to everybody out there listening, it's, it's really up to you how this sport goes and how this sport goes forward. Like let's all be positive in our criticism of events. Like obviously there's some things that aren't going to go right. Positive, constructive criticism and email to the event organizers detailing things that could be done better or um, not so much like sometimes it can people get negative on, on social media and Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Like 
Let's, let's stamp that out. It's like if a sponsor's looking at a sport, they want to make sure that the sport's in a good spot. They don't want to see, like you, you see all sports get bagged out, but like if you have less of that, it's a more of a positive environment. And then more people want to do things because like you talk to event organizers and even someone like Dean, he said the reason why he does things most of the time when he comes to the finish of the docker, it's just that one guy who goes up to him and goes, hey Dean, thanks so much for that event. I had the best time. It, and that's what it's that's what it's about at the end of the day for all these people like sure money is a byproduct of maybe some running these events or selling skis or something like that but you don't sell skis to make millions of dollars you sell skis because you love to do it and i i race because i love to do it i don't race because i'm going to make millions you know like it's just it's not possible you know like not, or not at this stage maybe maybe one day athletes can be making millions but you know what i mean it's all about your passion it's all about your loves and it's all about doing the things that you really want to do and let's all do that together yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's a step-by-step -step process. You know, again, certainly we've now got a couple of touch points that we can go and approach other uh, sponsors and say, look, here's the exposure that Shoreham Partners has got or Investec has got or Oakley has got or Maui Gym's got or whatever it might be. Maybe your brand actually slots in very, very well here. Whereas sort of three or four or five years ago, we really didn't have a whole lot of that. It seems to be, certainly in the surf ski world, it seems to be, you know, coming together very nicely and 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 stand up seems to be very very similar um so just in if i can uh, finish up and time is moving on it's been great talking to you michael and again i i really want to say to you and i've got to know you very well personally but i think you're just a phenomenal ambassador as an athlete um i think you've done a what you've done in this series is really first class it's a real credit to you as a as a person and to an athlete, the exposure and sitting there thinking, how do I give my sponsors something when I can't compete is, um, uh, I think, very, very gracious of you and, and very well thought out. But I think for the thousands and thousands and thousands of views, matter of fact, hundreds of thousands of views that have actually watched the podcast, it's been great. The people you've had on, it's been amazing. But what does the sort of next one or two, three years look like for you um, as an athlete? I'm not going to put you on the spot to when you're going to marry Chrissy, but as you as an athlete. <laughs> Uh, um, well, I think there's everything's going to happen probably in the next like three years or so. There's going to be lots of different changes in my life, but I think it's important to just keep doing the things I'm passionate about. Like whether I, I race to the extent that I'm doing, probably not realistic, but I keep saying that year after year and I keep going back and I keep doing it because I, I don't know, like I don't want to go get to 50 or something like that and be like, oh, I just wish I would race a couple more years. I wish I did a little bit more, you know, like I want to make sure that everything I do each and every day is something that's positive. It's exciting. It's moving forward. It's creating new opportunities for myself and whether that's in racing or, or business or something like that. Cause I guess I see business as some sort of like a, a sport outlet in a way, like you sort of, either you are competing, you're, you're, you're racing against your competition and you're trying to outdo them. So I think it's kind of like that mentality that I have in that pack racing I was speaking about before. So probably moving more into that type of thing. Um, the next three years, definitely still racing, um, unless I get some major injury or something that prevents me from doing it or another crisis like we're going through at the moment. But um, I love to race. I love to compete. I love going to events. I love experiencing things. I'm sure I'll expand on those experiences going forward as well, like maybe creating camps and, and, and like uh, tours and all sorts of different stuff where I can actually share my passion with other paddlers because at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get out in the water and actually enjoy the ocean and the elements and all the things that it gives to us with other people and, and like-minded people who enjoy it just as much as you do and be able to talk story with them and hear about their lives. And that's, that's sort of like the focus for me and just trying to help more people get into this great sport that we do. Yeah, no, well, I think that's, uh, you're doing a wonderful job and it's, it's, uh, 
I'm absolutely sure you've got a very inquisitive mind and uh, in, the, in the years that I've known you, you're always wanting to grow and develop, which again is a real credit to you. I know that uh, you have been winning a lot of prize money because we're managing your money here. It's no small pot of money. So, and you're quite inquisitive on the business side of things. So it's, it seems to be, you know, you're, you're a guy that wants to continually grow and develop and you're thinking about the long term as well as not just the short term of results, which again, I think is a real credit to you. Just one final thing, how um, do you approach planning and goal setting? Um, so I guess I have the short term, the long term strategy. I sort of look at my events going forward and, and work out what my year's going to look like basically in December, January and sort of plan out that year. And then I work out what I keep want to achieve. So there's obviously a lot of events that I want to do well at, but what are the ones that I haven't done well at before? What are the ones that I made mistakes in the year before? What are the ones that I haven't won before that I, I need to get on my, like notch my belt? Like if you're talking about winning, like winning's always about what it feels like doesn't matter if you win like the local time trial you win the biggest race in the world like it all feels the same it's just the recognition changes so it's about making sure that i'm just maybe doing more community races or like making sure that i'm giving back to the community but also winning something like i said like a molokai eventually because i haven't done that yet or like i've won an isa i've won an icf i've won you know, i haven't won an app overall world tour but i've won the distance to world tour championship like so there's all those different goals you have to break down and look at but then you have to actually analyze that with the amount of income you can get from it and the amount of experiences I can get to it. Because the way I've always looked at racing is when I'm traveling, I want to be actually experiencing things. And that's something that Chrissy and I spoke about when we first got together. It was like, if we do this, we do this together and we go everywhere. Because when we look back, we want to have all these amazing memories and experiences and we've raced. So sometimes maybe I haven't had the best result, but it, it's not because I'm not doing the things that I love to do. And, and I think that's a really important thing about the mental side of racing is Sometimes we get so caught up in that, that one goal that's way down the track that we forget to live our life in between. And then we look back and we go, we spent nine months on that goal and then we didn't achieve what we wanted to do. But then we also didn't achieve anything for that nine months before because we didn't, we didn't go to that restaurant that we wanted to go to. We didn't spend that money. Like I've always invested money into myself first. So like if, if I need to have a really nice meal to make myself feel good, I'll go and have it. Like if I need to buy a set of headphones or I need to, to go and do these different things along the way, I will, but I'll make sure that I know that where my income is coming from to make sure that I can do that. And then I, I always look at a goal and I, I set a plan, um, I guess if for racing or in things that I want to achieve. And then I work at the process to achieve that goal and then I stick to the process. That's basically any sort of goal setting, I guess, is, is the same sort of process. I guess it's probably the same with wealth management. It's about looking at the long term and going, okay, so we got X amount of dollars now. Let's Let's work out how we're going to grow that over the next 20 years. But then also let's live in the period that we're living in as well. Let's not just focus on our wealth creation. Let's focus on making sure that we're looking after the individual and making sure that we're achieving things each and each day and each week and each month and each year. And then obviously down the track, we're going to be, we're going to be um, successful and we're going to be supported by our own decisions that we're making now. So there's like, obviously I like, I like the whole process of decision-making and I've obviously made lots of mistakes over time, but, I'm never happy. I'm never afraid to make a mistake because then I know that that's not the right thing to do, but it could be the right thing to do at the same time. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different things that go into it. And I don't know, there's a million different questions you ask yourself each and every day, but glass half full stuff is what I come down to and just seeking opportunities, seeking experiences and seeking a good time. Fabulous. Making mistakes is okay too, by the way, just don't make them twice the same one. Um, we're just going to finish with a couple of rapid fire questions here. So short bullet point answers, if I can. Um, or if you can. Uh, I'll try. Favourite part of the world? South of France. 
first love? Uh, Christy. Okay, well, I'll rephrase that. Other than <laughs> I wasn't looking for the love of your life. First I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know where you were going there. My first passion, ocean. Interesting. Favourite part of Australia? Southwest. Favourite food? Pasta. What's been your biggest injury? Uh, fracture in my tibia. What's your greatest strength? Ooh, one word. Um, being able to focus on the big picture. Weakness? Um, not being able to control my ambition sometimes. This is a tough one. Socialist or capitalist? Capitalist. And if you had one last thing to do in your life, because it was all going to end in a week's time, what would you do? Just the same stuff that I'm doing already. I, I wouldn't change anything. I think um, I've got to go along on this question, but um, I'm just very, I've been somebody who's always done the things he's wanted to do and, and chase his passion, chase his goals. So I probably wouldn't change anything. I just keep doing the same thing that I'm doing. Probably see my friends and family, um, have a nice meal, have a nice, nice red wine and, and enjoy it. Uh, that's the right answer. Yeah, you, you got a very happy life and you're doing great. And like I said before, Michael, you're a real credit to, uh, I think, all of the, you know, you're a true ocean man, as Mel Cameron says. Um, he thinks you're the ultimate ocean man, by the way, um, and is a huge fan. But um, I think you're a real credit. And uh, to you and to Chrissy, all the very best for the years ahead. Keep training hard. Um, we love having you involved with the Shore Partners Race team. And I know when we started, it was all about ocean paddling. And then you said, you know, you're going to go and do this stand-up, which I knew nothing about. It's like, let's see where it goes. And you've just, you've done a wonderful job, multiple world championships and the like. And uh, you should be very proud of your achievements. And I think you've got an awful lot ahead. So thanks for inviting me to be the questioner. I hope I've done half a reasonable job. Um, but again, congratulations on the series. It's been a huge success and you've done a wonderful job. So thanks, Michael Booth. Thanks, Earl, and thanks for your support, not only of, of myself, but of, of the sport in a whole and actually coming in and sort of helping really, really push that sport to the next level. So on behalf of the Ocean Paddling community, we really thank you and, and thank everybody at Shore and Partners for their support. Um, to everybody out there who has been supporting the, the Boothcast and the series, as Earl talks about, really appreciate it. You want to listen to these uh, Apple, Apple Podcast or Spotify. And if you want to watch any of these back, uh, Boothcast on on Facebook, on my Michael Booth Facebook page. So Earl, thank you so much for interviewing me today. And I, I know you really wanted to do that and sort of throw a few questions my way and mix it up. So really appreciate your time and, and all the best. Pleasure, very insightful. And uh, again, for the, the, the Yumpsteen's time, congratulations. It's been a huge success and, and well done. See ya. Thank you, mate. See ya.